I did architecture work for the Air Force for, for many years, got to be part of some pretty large projects, as you mentioned, you know, reasoned about, you know, the single security architecture for the Air Force and looking at, at ways in which we can become more consistent with, you know, the Department of Defense. And one thing I came to appreciate from all that effort is the central role that identity plays in cybersecurity. And so when when it became time to start the company, I think that we began by by certainly trying to understand that market better. Hey everyone, welcome to Brains Behind AI, show where we meet the innovators, entrepreneurs, and the real brains behind some of the most successful AI startups. We ask them about their journey from coming up with the idea to finding the product market fit. And from their experience, draw a set of principles that we can take away to ours. This is your host, Ari. Thank you for spending time with us. And now, let the show begin. Hello and welcome to another episode of Brains Behind AI. I am Ari Yacobi and I'm here with a special guest, Andrew. Andrew is the co-founder and chief technology officer at Complex, where he leads the development of next generation operational risk management and situational awareness tools in multi-spatial, multi-temporal distributed systems. He is a thought leader in cyber and data management with specific expertise in large-scale heterogeneous network design, deep web data extraction, and data theory. Andrew was formerly a U.S. Air Force Senior Cyberspace Operations Officer who led the enterprise network modernization and design effort for the Air Force and large Department of Defense initiatives. Andrew received his Bachelor's of Science in Computer Science from United States Air Force Academy and holds a PhD in Computer Science from University of Oxford. Very, very impressive background, Andrew. Welcome to the show. All right. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Andrew, before we dive into the company, given your impressive background, we want to learn a bit about yourself, your own personal journey, and how your personal journey led you to where you are today. Sure. Yeah, I think that's that's great. And I think it's, you know, like a lot of those things, it's inexorably linked to uh, the, the company as well. Yeah, grew up had a wonderful opportunity to serve my country and uh, join the U.S. Air Force and really fell in love with computers there. I'd never really programmed or done anything with cybersecurity at all until I went into the Air Force, but, you know, just absolutely loved, uh, you know, the, the elegant mathematical formalisms that underpinned, you know, algorithms and software development. And so, uh, you know, from there, had an opportunity to, as you said, go to, go to graduate school, you know, learn even more about computer science. And, uh, you know, in graduate school, I studied web data extraction, as you mentioned, and it was a wonderful topic because it allowed me to, I'll say, play at the confluence of a lot of different subject areas. So when you do that, you have to think about algorithm development. You have to think about computational complexity. There's also strong artificial intelligence aspects as well. You've got to think about how, you know, data is semantified. And so there's a lot of, um, you know, descriptive logics. And, uh, you know, you also have to think about expert systems and how, how things can be automated to simulate human users. You know, at the same time, how we reason about and analyze heterogeneous data, you know, how you deal with things like inconsistency and ambiguity, given that, you know, one website may not, may not report the same thing that another does. How do you reason about provenance and reputation? So it actually was, I think, a wonderful exploration of a lot of things that have ended up mattering a lot more as I, I ventured out into my career. At Oxford, I actually met, you know, my best friend, Jason Crabtree, who is, you know, the, my co-founder and, and, you know, who we started the company together. And, 
Jason's also an incredible technologist, incredible leader, you know, kind of person I'd follow anywhere. You know, we were absolutely captivated by artificial intelligence and its potential to be transformative for our society. But, you know, at the same time, I think we were both, you know, concerned and troubled by, you know, why these technologies are not more accessible, why the, you know, those that have employed them so effectively tend to be these large you know, multinational corporations that can, uh, you know, employ legions of data scientists and data engineers. And, you know, how unfortunate it is that, you know, to inequality and to, you know, the coming labor dynamics that there's the, the benefits of this and, you know, incredible potential is being reaped by, by so few. And so, you know, I think what we came to understand was the work we did as graduate students, there's this exhilarating science aspect of you get a, a data set and you find some insight on a local machine and you get to report some cool discovery. But, you know, the challenge, and there's this tremendous chasm between, you know, that and then having scalable operationalized products that work with artificial intelligence. And I think ultimately what we found, and this was, you know, after we left, you know, graduate school, we had parallel paths. Jason was a West Point graduate who was studying on a Rhodes Scholarship, actually. And uh, so we were kind of these displaced, we were, you know, the American military guys. So it was certainly, uh, you know, we had a lot in common there. But, you know, I think we came to appreciate that potential. And then we took that into our next roles. You know, we both had leadership roles in our respective services, cyber communities. And it's incredibly challenging to build data-driven decision systems at scale. And if you think about, even in a trivial case, what one has to do, there's heterogeneous data sources that one has to, to ingest that data from. There's some degree of, of normalization, typically some deduplication or entity resolution has to occur. Depending on the use case, you often have to schematize or semantify the data, and you've got to organize it into some kind of appropriate persistence model. Some data is best organized as wide columns or graphs. Sometimes old asset style relations are good enough. Sometimes you need some kind of more ad hoc querying capability. You don't know necessarily a priori what your access patterns are going to be. So, you know, a document store or something might be better for that or an object store. But all those things are, are difficult challenges to, to, to reason about, and they haven't even ac- actually helped you address the core problem. And so once you've done all that, now you need to actually run some kind of transformation to find insight. And so that can be you know, pretty challenging in a way. And ultimately, I think that given the challenges we had in the, in the U.S. military, we began talking more and more with people in industry. And we made the, the decision ultimately that to, in order to have the impact that we wanted to have and to you know, help advance accessibility for these technologies, we weren't going to necessarily be able to do what we hoped to in uniform. And we ultimately decided the best thing we could do was, was start a company. And ultimately, it's this very ambitious vision, of course, that we really are endeavoring to democratize artificial intelligence. And it's not necessarily by, by making a bunch of algorithms or something. It's, it's more about providing a data factory, a platform by which you know, our customers, you know, small, medium enterprises, or even large enterprises can reason and curate and find insight from their data without necessarily having to have that, that legion of data engineer and data science you know, workforce that is incredibly expensive and, and doesn't scale to everyone. So two military guys met at University of Oxford. You came up with this idea. You felt you need to go start a company to a data factory to enable your vision. Where, where did you guys go from there? Ultimately, we both you know, had service commitments, which I think helped us to gain a lot of insight into how these kinds of systems are built. I did architecture work for the Air Force for, for many years, got to be part of some pretty large projects, as you mentioned, you know, reasoned about you know, the single security architecture for 
the Air Force and looking at, at ways in which we can become more consistent with you know, the Department of Defense. And one thing I came to appreciate from all that effort is the central role that identity plays in cybersecurity. And so when, when it became time to start the company, I think that we began by, by certainly trying to understand that market better. But I think ultimately we made a decision pretty early on that as, as much as the data factory is what the company is ultimately about, and that's the ultimate vision, even if we could raise the $100 million it would take to bring something like that to market. I mean, you think about you know, message queues and, and, and all the things that have to happen. It's not just about technology. It's about productizing a lot of disparate technologies and making them interoperable with one another and making them accessible so that you know, customers that, that aren't necessarily well-versed on your ecosystem that weren't trained by you intensively can actually get value and use your product with their data. We decided early on that in order to bring something back to market, we couldn't do it responsibly without really understanding the market. And so we made the decision that it was better to build experiences on top of a platform as a means of understanding what the platform really needs to consist of. I think that it also made the problem a lot more manageable too. It allows you, it allows one to get market traction to prove that you can actually build systems and that if you can do something, say two or three times, that perhaps there is a generalizable fabric underneath it. And so given our expertise in risk management and cybersecurity, the first products were relate, you know, related to cybersecurity and, and insurance. It's helping, you know, reinsurers reason about their underwriting risks. It's about automating underwriting so that in a pre-bind sense, underwriters are have a better understanding of the risk accumulation of a new policy against their larger portfolio. In cybersecurity, we built a product very centered around identity. And uh, what that meant was, was using you know, Active Directory data, looking at the underlying protocols by which authentication happens. We can help better assure that people are who they say they are. You know? And then every log and every other thing that happens is you know, effectively builds upon that. And those were both very good representative use cases for the larger thing that we were trying to promote. You know, cyber in particular is something that I've dealt a lot with in my career. And as, as far as a data problem goes, it really is the Wild West. There are sensors in different places all over the, the enterprise. Those sensors each have a, I'll say, partial and very incomplete view of information. And at times they can be very inconsistent, even with one another. An easy example is you think of, of, of network time. You know, NTP is the protocol that standardized all that. It's been around 35 years. And yet reasoning about event time across an enterprise, it still is not something that is trivial in most places, believe it or not, most enterprises. When you ingest telemetry, if you're on, if you have different sensors, like a PCAP sensor that reasons about a device's IP address, and that's how, how it partitions, you know, different entities. If it's on the other side of a, of a NATing gateway, which is very common in enterprises, it's actually going to report a, a different IP than what the, the endpoint you know, uh, logs report. And so enriching data as it's ingested and, and normalizing that into a unified data model is, I think, a very extensible challenge. And it's something that has allowed us to build infrastructure then that is far more generally applicable than that particular use case. But that's, that's how we began, is, is by finding market traction building small products that we felt were, you know, generalizable to, to greater domains. Interesting, right? So, and I also noticed on your website, you have these three unique offerings. There is the cybersecurity, there's one tailored around insurance, and then there's one tailored around finance. And, and what, what I noticed was each of them, there is this element of risk management 
that's inherent in all of them. I am curious, as a data scientist, when you were about to embark this, did you say, let's focus on cybersecurity and get that right, and then you scale it out, scaled it out from there, or any one of these, right? Or did you focus on risk management and that aspects of modeling and algorithms and say how many applications can we have for this type of modeling that we do? It's a bit of an iterative process, sorry. I would say it was more the latter in that we we looked at the infrastructure that we were building and we wanted to best showcase products where we felt we could get market traction based on the infrastructure that we built in order to prove this thesis that, that hey, this fabric is generalizable. Ultimately, it's important to note that that, that was the, the reason for, for picking three in a sense. I mean, anybody can do something once, lightning can strike twice. If you do something three times, perhaps you can convince the market that it's generalizable. And every time you build a new product vertical, you need new product people, you need new marketing people. It, you, you also need to you know, build credibility in that, in that very different space. And so we're not looking to build more and more verticals, which I think is what the implication of kind of the first, the first one would be. What we're far more interested in is proving this is generalizable. And then after we've done that, after we've built the right components underneath, think of it as maybe perhaps a, a, a Lego set that can be reassembled in, in different ways. But fundamentally, the, the building blocks are the same. If we can prove that, well, then other businesses can build on top of our platform. And that's ultimately where we want to go. We're, we're not looking to be the, the product designers for everything. We're looking to be a technology provider to many different domains. And which explains your fourth offering, which is the operating system. I'm guessing that's, that's what the intention there is. That's exactly right. Can you elaborate a bit more on, on what you're looking to accomplish with that? Yeah. And so the operating system is what underpins the other, the other offerings. And as the, you know, the other experiences are meant to be more accessible to customers. We build them as SaaS and they're, there's something that are, it's a very guided kind of experience and that, Hey, you know, you forward your windows event logs here, you install these agents on your network. We give you insights about your data. The OS itself is still a SaaS driven offering, but it's far less prescriptive. The idea being that we give you those different persistence layers. We actually have a, a very cool browser-driven formalism for specifying event-driven applications to assist in ingesting and transforming data. And then using those, those different persistence layers, we've got a, you know, Spark as a service that helps define how, you know, data can be transformed. You can, uh, you know, write generalizable Spark jobs. We have in-browser notebook analytics that allow you then to, to find insight from data in an ad hoc way and then promote those to a more periodic and regular automated evaluation. And those are, those are nice for, you know, looking at something, you know, on, let's say a daily or a weekly basis and generating a report to someone about, you know, what the data is showing. And that's something that as the other experiences have taught us what the market needs, the QoS offering improves, and we expose more and more of it to, to customers that, that want to use it as a, as a means of, of finding insight from their data. You came up with this offering, right? And then I'm going to just rewind back to to the start. How did you find your first customer? Because as an engineer and a computer scientist, I know we're good at solving technical problems in a room, right? On our computer locked in. But going out to the market, finding the client market traction is a different beast within itself. So what I would like to learn is when you were thinking about taking it to market, how did you approach the first client? What was your strategy for go-to-market? 
yeah, I know. I, I think you're exactly right that it, it is a challenge. And that's why we took the approach that we took with building the, the more prescriptive experiences first. You know, QCyber was really the first thing that, that went to market. And it was because that was the domain that we understood the best and we had the best network in. And we were, even before Jason and I left the military, we were able to talk extensively with technology leaders in a lot of different firms that helped us understood or understand, excuse me, what, you know, what the real need is for about, you know, what was failing there and, and where a, a product could be introduced that they'd really like to buy. And that's where a very specific, pointed, well-specified identity product, you know, reasoning about Kerberos traffic and active directory data and, and Windows event logs pertaining to identity. That's really where that came from, you know, re- reasoning about privilege assurance and how, you know, potential attackers could pivot through a network. That was all insight that could be you know, gained from the telemetry that we were ingesting. And so in a sense, it, it became about doing that first. And then we, you know, thankfully found a lot of great traction there. And in a sense, you know, that offerings with bootstraps insurance and, and, you know, those in turn bootstrap, you know, the underlying platform. Got it. Did you hire a sales guy or were you between you and your other co-founder, you guys said, let's go knock at the doors and see, was it just Jason and you, or did you, did you go out, hire a salesperson? Yeah. You know, I think it's something that it's an interesting dynamic when you talk about building a startup, you know, the founding team, you certainly have skills and you have experience that, that you've, you know, that have enabled you to get to where you are in your career. But those first few hires, especially the more senior ones are really, I, I think, at least for us, you know, based on the feedback we were getting from potential investors and financial customers, it's about complementing those areas where you're weak. And so Jason and I, coming from a military background, coming from a very technical background, we had, you know, certain coverage there, but it, it was about finding people that, you know, could help us with certain business aspects. And, you know, but as far as a salesperson, we didn't actually hire a salesperson until, you know, much later. I think that, you know, the conventional wisdom is always that, you know, the founding team makes the, you know, say the first five sales. And I think that was very consistent for us as well. You know, after that was done, we've now understand how we can train someone to sell this. And, and, you know, we've now had have a, a really wonderful sales force actually that helps us, you know, scale that sales process and is, is, is helping us get incredible traction in the market. But, you know, to get that first foot in the door in a lot of places, it was Jason and, and to a lesser extent it was me. I see you're pretty distributed now, right? You are between UK and, and US, right? How are you running the sales today or how, what is, what does the go-to-market looks like now? Sure. Well, and it's a good point you bring up. And I think this is, you know, probably a, if you allow me for a moment, a, a good lesson from us as a startup as well. You know, when Jason and I began in earnest with a company, you know, you need to get so far before you can raise external funds. So we got out of the military, we mortgaged our houses, we do what founders did, and we, you know, paid for it for ourselves for, for a long time. And the people that we could afford at that point where, you know, we found, you know, thought leaders in open source software projects, and they were in places that were, you know, in a lot of a lot of different places that could help us with some R&D. And so, you know, we have a, um, you know, Uruguayan entity that was, you know, an absolute expert in generative modeling. And so they do, you know, discrete event simulation. And that was something that, that helped us get started there. And so from the beginning, you know, distributed organization was, was, I think, in our DNA. And so, while we did eventually focus on a headquarters, which is in Virginia, and that's where the majority of the of the sales staff is, 
it's something that we do have offices all over. And I think that's important, especially for an AI startup, given that the talent one needs to actually bring and execute a vision is not necessarily all going to be in the same market. And so, you know, there are really good distributed systems engineers in some places, other places, just because of the ecosystem have, you know, very good product specialists and and other places you may need to draw actual more theoretical data scientists and computer scientists. And so I think for us, it was always important that we, we have the capability to, you know, build scalable satellite offices anywhere, but at the same time, the sales team, just the way it's worked out is, is today, you know, basically in, in one place. Now, as we look at the future, where do you see the future of complex? You talk about building an operating system to do more. Where do you say, say from three years or five years from now, how do you see the future? It's a great question, Ari. I, I think, as we've said, it's the idea is not to build more domain-specific products. The idea is that is that we build out and expose more and more of the underlying operating system. I always like that operating system. I know it's a bit of a metaphor, but it's an abstraction layer for the tools and resources and compute that one can bring to bear to find you know insight from data and enable data-driven decision-making. And we hope to democratize that capability more and more. We can make it so that it's even more accessible. You know, there's tremendous investment in, in doing that. It's not as simple as, as having a really cool piece of technology. It's also about building a really great user experience that's really accessible and that is, you know, forgiving and finds, you know, anticipates different eventualities to, to make sure that the customers are able to actually get value out of it. And so we hope to continue on that journey. And that's in three to five years, I'll be absolutely delighted if that's our core business. As I think about the OS, right? And I, now I'm thinking more in terms of the cloud and cloud providers we see today, the Amazon, Microsoft, and Google. Are you building and tailoring it to those cloud players so anyone who's using it can leverage and benefit from your OS? How are you approaching the OS and where it sits in terms of a platform? It's a fantastic question. It's important to us to have as much, we'll say, exposure to as much of the market as we can. And so we deliberately built in a way that doesn't use, say, sticky offerings within the different cloud providers. It's built on you know, Terraform using cloud-native design patterns. And so it's a series of containerized microservices that's orchestrated with Kubernetes. And you know, the, the reason that that's so helpful is that while we may leverage one cloud provider or another, switching is, you know, while not always, it's certainly not free, it's a lot less painful than, you know, than if you're locked into something. And in fact, building the way we have, there's even, you know, hyper-converged, you know, on-premise architectures that we could deploy to. And so there are use cases that we're exploring where that may make sense. And so for us, it was important from the start to build in such a way that we weren't, we weren't locked into a particular ecosystem, not because they're not good, but because that's, you know, that itself is a business risk, but it's also, it also limits the market. There are certain customers that simply, you know, won't do business with, with one vendor for particular reasons or, you know, for locality reasons, or, I mean, you're, you're aware of this dynamic. It's something that it was important to us to avoid. And so we built in a way that we're very platform agnostic. That's excellent, right? And it opens up to more clients to be agnostic of, of the platform that the client is, your client is on. Now, turning towards your clients, a lot of our listeners are managers and execs at organizations that can be your potential clients or maybe are your potential clients. What message do you have for those managers and industry leaders that are listening to this? Because AI and applying artificial intelligence is on everyone's mind these days. 
and that's where the future is. It's well established. But the, I see, especially in a larger organizations, there is this struggle to operationalize and adopt. So to the listeners who are listening to this and can benefit from it, what message do you have for them? How can they accelerate on that journey? I think it's important, first of all, to understand um, the limits of some of these things and to not fight that in a sense. I do see that a lot. All decision-making is highly contextual. So I remember being in graduate school 10 years ago and uh, you know, being told in the machine learning class that you know, the state space in Go is so large that it's going to take a long time before the algorithms and the computers scale to the point where you know, they're beating humans. And it happened, you know, I think two, two years later. Um, and now, you know, the best Go players in the world are, are, are computers. That's an example of something that is, I, I think, shows the strength of artificial intelligence and certainly the, state, this, the current state of the art of artificial intelligence. But where so many enterprises fail is not in that part. You know, getting to the, the, the AI part, it's certainly not easy, but it's a lot less difficult than getting the data correct. I think that, you know, the, the industry and science has shown again and again that off-the-shelf models with great data will always outperform really well-curated models with mediocre data. And so, so much of what we see is, is that challenge. There's, you know, I think the, the tendency tends to be, especially for these large enterprises that want to jumpstart this kind of process, is they invest in a big, massive $100 million data lake project, and those tend to fail. When you spend that kind of money on something, it's expected to be all things to all people, and then those things aren't. You know, Hadoop and Elastic are wonderful technologies, but they're really only good, well, they're best, I should say. They're optimized when one knows exactly what they're looking for. But in order to find correlations in data, you need to be, I think, you need to get more a priori consideration to how the data is organized. And that's you know, was something that we highly encourage. And so I, I will say something that's surprised me when we help enterprises is how important the event-driven application design pattern is. There is so much that one can do in streaming to enrich data, to normalize it, and then to organize it correctly that it's actually then useful and you don't end up with this situation where data is incredibly siloed. It's not unified into any kind of cohesive data model. And then, you know, it, it, AI can't be brought to bear there. Once data gets at rest, especially if it's put at rest in a, in a really inappropriate way, it's incredibly difficult to reason about. And so, you know, the advice that I give to enterprises when they start on this journey is your first several hires here, they're not data scientists, actually, even though you're on this AI journey, they're data engineers or, you know, they're vendors like us that can help you, you know, wrangle and curate and understand your data and have it in a place so that as the algorithms, you know, mature and, and certainly any single algorithm, this technology is constantly transforming. You never get too dependent on that. But if you have underneath it all an infrastructure and a data supply chain that is, is feeding what you know, your future AI aspirations are going to be, that's what's so critical. It's difficult because that also then implicitly, the, the challenging part of that is there needs to be a rationalization of, of what you want to actually know. You know the, the really attractive thing about the data lake is, well, I just save everything. And that way, no matter what crazy question I want to ask 10 years from now, I'll have that capability. But there's really no such thing as a free lunch in this space. And so, you know, I think that that rationalization of, of what exactly, what insight I need to find and what kind of access pattern for what kind of data model I need to actually think about, those are the important questions. And it's not as, I'll say, glamorous as a deep learner or, you know, a Bayesian network or something, but 
that stuff can always come later and it can always come in a much more efficient and cost-effective way if one solves the, you know, the data model problem first. Yeah, very, very true. I, I like how you're looking at it and a great advice indeed. Turning to the other side, the aspiring entrepreneurs, given your experience building a company and building a successful company, what advice do you have for the aspiring entrepreneurs out there looking to build a company that touches AI or an artificial intelligence space? So, you know, there's a lot of advice out there for startups. I think one thing that I appreciate a lot more now that probably I've not seen exactly enumerated anywhere else. So if it is, I apologize. As soon as you take money from investors, their the, the measurement immediately begins. And that's absolutely fair because, you know, in, investors deserve a return on their capital. And so, you know, you're going to be measured against, you know, revenue growth. You're going to be measured against profitability. R&D unfortunately, kind of runs counter to those. And so as a person doing an AI startup, it's very important to understand that R&D is going to have to be continuous. The market changes, the technology changes, your competition will change. And so it's important that R&D investments are made. And part of that then is it's very critical that I think for AI startups more than, than many other spaces, that one finds the right kind of investors. I think we've had peers that I've known that have chased the wrong things when they raise money. I think that chasing evaluation or, or, you know, trying to play term sheets off, off each other is, I think, a real mistake. I think what's far more important, even if, you know, it's not optimal compared to some of those other things, is you find investors that believe what you believe. In a lot of other kinds of startup environments, that's, it, it always matters a lot, but I think it's so critical in AI just because the IP is harder to find at times and then the market traction can be a little bit slower. And, you know, R&D is something that has to be continual. So it's incredibly important to find thought leaders and people that believe what you believe and can help partner with you and can help support you the right way, just because it's, it's certainly not, it, you know, I think AI startups are not something that, that can happen overnight. There is a lot of beyond product market fit. There is a lot of product refinement that needs to happen. Just given the nature of these technologies, there's a lot of experimentation and it's, you know, understanding the characterization and bias within what one is doing, you know, when one is baselining data. And, and finding patterns and finding anomalies. It's not something that is, it's not widget-based, I should say. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is you're saying is be smart about the money you take. And it's less about having term sheets compete with each other. It's more about having the right partner who believes in that, in the fact that there has to be more experimentation. And experimentation needs to be continuous and not just measures and judges everything by the revenues and and number of customers and number of dollars made, right? Yeah. I, I mean, obviously that is critically important and we're highly focused on that now and always, but, you know, particularly in the beginning, uh, it's important to find, to find investors that are aligned with your execution plan. And it's important that those kinds of things are part of it, that, you know, when you're at the stage of a few people that you haven't figured it all out because you haven't, it's important to, to understand that is absolutely part of, of how one grows and how one executes. That is the great advice. And my last question to you, Andrew, is we're in these difficult times, right, with this global pandemic, COVID-19. I want to understand if it impacted or adjusted your business and, and how you're dealing with it. Because I think that there's learning here, too. And what I've seen is entrepreneurs are resilient by nature. And there's a lot we can take from them on that. We would love, would love to hear your thoughts. 
we built the business, as I said, in a way that we were all distributed well. And so our operations are in the cloud and colos and other things. And so for us, as far as the operations part, I like to say it was actually fairly seamless. We all were at work on Monday and then the CDC changes guidelines. And so, you know, we asked everyone, you know, kind of in the lead up to that, hey, make sure you're, you're taking your your charger home every night in addition to your your notebook. You know, just one Monday night, it's just, hey, everyone's got to stay home now. And we've been there, you know, basically ever since, I think it was late March. And, you know, I think we found, I've, I've been incredibly proud of the team and I'm incredibly proud of the way that we've continued to collaborate and work well together. You know, we run a lean, agile product development shop. And one thing that we found just because we measured with the KPIs that, you know, some teams have actually been more productive remotely and everyone is actually pretty close. You know, I do think there are certain ways we had to adapt organizationally. And I think procedurally, it was important to, you know, I think that there is something that's lost when you all can't get around a whiteboard and just having the, you know, video conferences all day is not necessarily optimal for this kind of environment either. But you know, what we encourage people to do is instead of necessarily having meetings, write more memos, you know, memorialize more things. And, it, you know, I think we found that it, it's actually been, you know, really great for us. And, and certainly we're talking now about even when we're through this, how we change our operations and, you know, allow more remote work and find ways to, you know, help people, you know, achieve a bit of the, the work-life balance they found here. You know, I think that the bigger impact has been on, you know, obviously the, you know, making sure that our customers are taken care of and making sure that our, you know, products are are helping them and still, you know, providing the right kind of value against their priorities, just because everything is shifted for them as well. You know, we have customers that have been highly impacted by this. And so making sure that, that, you know, we're good responsible partners to them has been something that's been a continual focus. Andrew, thank you for taking the time to be with us. This was super valuable and, and we appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Oh, Ari, it was, it was my pleasure. And uh, again, very much appreciate the opportunity to be here. And uh, I'm a big fan of the podcast and will you know, very eagerly continue to, uh, to listen. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here today. If you like what you heard and are interested in more, visit us online at brainedbehind.ai and sign up for my monthly AI startup tracker. That's where I cut through the noise and bring you AI startups that are making tangible progress. Till next time, go out, be the brains behind AI.